This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. I guess if you're older, you get to stay in the service with us kids, youth. But if you're not that old, you may leave. Define old, he says. I move that bar every year. Yeah, Bruce, well, no, he's a youngster. Is this like our uh, eighth year or ninth year we're starting? Do you know, Brent? Ten? It's a bunch of years, okay? More years than we thought. And for some reason, I, I started to go back and look, but I think from the beginning, ninth, okay? I think from the beginning that this first Sunday of a calendar year, Gary has preached. So this seems to be an assigned slot for me. Um, let me tag on to a little bit what Kim says. Since it's the, the first of the year, you know, um, I want to do something this morning to try to launch us into the, ne- to the next year. And we usually, you know, think of the dumb things like uh, New Year's resolutions and uh, those, those kind of things. So h- how many of you have a, a resolution this year to, uh, to um, uh, gain weight? <laughs> Liars. Okay. That's the only resolution because uh, I'll leave that alone. Are you going to vaccinate this year? Going to get a booster this year? If required, they're going to get a boost to your booster this year, and a booster to that one, too. Or are you going to hold out? Or you will hold out? The real question is, are you satisfied right where you're at? And you'd be happy to go through the whole year right where you're at. Or are there some things that need some reconstruction in your life? We don't talk a lot about reconstruction. The, the word that we hear a lot nowadays is deconstruction. I don't know how many of you know what that word means and how it's used, but uh, for example, John Piper has a son who professed faith, left the faith, came back to the faith, and now has left it again. We say he has deconstructed his faith. Okay. Uh, likewise, some of you know a, 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 an old famous preacher from years back, uh, Tony Campolo. He had a son likewise who was a pastor and uh, has deconstructed his faith. I know some of you in here read a book by Josh Harris on dating. And should we date or should we not date? You may not know it, but Josh Harris has left the faith. He has deconstructed his faith. Um, there's a, a guy, uh, Rob Bell, one of the leaders in the emergent church movement, sold many books, led many people, probably away from Christ in that movement, but he has now left the faith entirely. What's your plan for this year? Status quo? You want to grow? Or are you thinking about just chucking the whole thing in? This is a time of year we, we think about some things, and I'm going to try to help us this morning to think through this. And the way I want to try to do it is I'm going to take you to Daniel uh, chapter 1. So you can turn there in your Bibles. We'll, we'll get there in, in just a minute. Daniel's a very controversial book, if you're not aware of it. 
when it was written is a controversy because there's so much uh, prophecy in Daniel. He, he looked years in advance and saw future kingdoms two or three hundred years before they came into existence. And so people say he couldn't have wrote that. He couldn't have seen that coming. This book couldn't have been written when Daniel says it was written. Um, there's things in this book also about end times that are very controversial. We're not going to go there. We're just going to look at chapter 1. We're going to kind of just get you started this morning in the book of Daniel. Uh, we'll talk more about it. We'll, we'll go. Uh, chapter 1 is just one piece of a very complicated puzzle. But it's a good piece. I think it's a good piece that can lead us into the year. Uh, the way I'm going to put this together, uh, we're going to, first we're going to go through chapter 1. We'll just talk about the story. I'll do that in three parts. It'll be Daniel's setting, Daniel's strategy, and Daniel's standing. And then we'll stop and we'll talk about that whole thing. Before we pray, let me give you one idea that I want you to think about. This first chapter mentions Daniel and his buddies a lot. Okay, Daniel and company are all over the first chapter here. But what, what I want you to, what I want to teach you this morning is that this chapter is not about Daniel. Okay, this chapter is not about Daniel. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning and we try to listen to your voice from the words on the pages of our Bible, we, we want to find uh, not just Daniel and um, his, his friends in the text. We want to find you in the text, Father, and we want to find ourselves in the text as well. We, we help you to help us find ourselves in this. Whatever Daniel and his friends are learning, we pray that we might learn the same things. We ask that you would take those things, those ideas that are taught, that you taught in the circumstances of Daniel's life. We, we pray that as we can see the same circumstances in our own lives, that we too might be fed, reassured, and boldly walk into this next year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. How many of you remember Wonder Years? you? There was a, Wonder Years was a good uh, thing when Grant was young. It was one of his favorite TV programs. And there was a guy, there was a teacher in that program by the name of Ben Stein. And some of you know who Ben Stein is. He played the role of a real boring teacher, a very wise man, but just very boring. I'm going to play old Ben Stein here just for a minute. You want to put that slide up for me? Grant loves it when I go back to the past with things. Here's our map, students. Let's try to find this. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 happens in the year 605 B.C. And 605 B.C. is where I want us to find ourselves this morning. Okay, right here, this blue, these two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, that's the Garden of Eden. That's where Adam and Eve walked and talked with God until they sinned, and God sent them out of the garden. And... Uh, put an angel there so they couldn't get back in. And as, as they left the garden and came out this way into Mesopotamia, um, Abraham, God encountered Abraham and told Abraham, you are going to be the father of a great nation. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah, eventually, I'm making a very long story very short, Abraham and Sarah, they eventually left this area and they moved over here to Bethlehem to the promised land. You see Jerusalem, Shechem, that area over in there. Abraham... Uh, and Sarah had some children. They had Isaac. 
Isaac had a son Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes. And they all existed in that land over here where God sent Abraham. So this is the promised land right here around Jerusalem. In time, uh, Joseph's, uh, or Jacob's 12 sons uh, were jealous of one of the brothers, Joseph. They sold him into slavery. And Joseph found himself over here in Egypt in prison for a while, but then eventually uh, found Pharaoh found favor with him, and Joseph was released in the fullness of time. Uh, there was a, a famine here, and so the 12, tri 12 sons who had sold their brother went, ha ended up over in Egypt to uh, looking for food, looking for water, because there was a famine going on. As they were over there in Egypt, things went great for a while, and that family of this 12 uh, tribes became a great nation in 430 years that God left them there. At the end of 430 years, God sent Moses, and Moses came, and Moses' assignment was to lead the people out of Egypt, and some of you know the story with all the plagues, and eventually Moses led the people in an exodus out of Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea, and you know the story there, Pharaoh's army was drowned there in the Red Sea. They then went and took a two-month journey after they uh, passed out of the Red Sea right here, and they came down here into this lower peninsula where the Mount uh, Sinai was, and Moses went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments. As Moses got the Ten Commandments and he came down the mountain, then they proceeded because their journey at that point was to go around this way and back over to the Promised Land. But as they were journeying back to the Promised Land, they rebelled. They disobeyed God, and God got angry with them. And so what, what, happens, what happens over and over again in the Scripture, I'm going to call it the four R's, is God sets down some rules, man rebels, God sees that rebellion, and He punishes that rebellion. We call that word he, um, retribution. He, he ex executes some retribution uh, on them. And then after 40 years of retribution, punishment there in the desert, He then redeems them. He restores them. He relents. Okay, four R's. So that's kind of what happened here. And as they eventually, under the leadership of Joshua, did get out of the 40 years in the desert and went back to the Promised Land, when they got to the Promised Land, they set things up. They didn't do things exactly as God had told them. And uh, they ended up fighting with each other. And they had a civil war. And so Israel, the nation of Israel, split. And you had what we call Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So we're, we're, I'm trying to get you guys to 605 B.C. Okay? So we have this split kingdom. Now there's two very important dates. You ought to have these memorized now. 720 B.C. In 720 B.C., we have Syria is up here. Syria comes down here and they conquer the northern kingdom. They conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and scatter them to the winds. So they're scattered to the winds, but in the south, Judah still exists. As Judah still exists, in 605, we're coming up on 586 B.C. In 586, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is going to go, of Babylon, I think it's on here, is going to go up and he's going to conquer this Assyrian king. And he conquers the Assyrian king, and three years after he conquers that Assyrian king, Nebuchadnezzar goes to Judah. And when he gets to Judah, our story begins. All right? Now, it's 6.05, and I thought 
that the other important date is 586 B.C. because in 586 B.C. Judah falls. But we're in 605 B.C. and in our story today, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and he's going to invade Judah. What you need to understand here that most of us don't know, which was kind of a, a reckoning to me or, or remembering to me, is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar as actually invaded Judah three times. And this is the first of the three times he invaded Judah. He invaded them this time. We're going to read about it today. Then later came a second time. And then finally he came in and squashed the whole thing in 586 B.C. So here's, that's where we're at right now. We're in 605. I'm no longer Ben Stein. <clears throat> let's go to chapter 1. And let's start reading. Let me get there. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Stop there. It's the third year. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has conquered the Syrian king, and three years later he decides, I'm going to go get Judah. And as he goes to get Judah, the king that's there in Judah is Jehoiakim. Now, most of the kings there were bad kings. And Jehoiakim was a bad king. He was rebellious. He did not do things as God wanted him to do. And uh, actually, two kings came after him before 586. But in 605, he was the third to last king that was going to come in here. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. All right? Now... What I want you to note here is this chapter is not about Daniel. This chapter is about God. It says right here, and the Lord, in verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. What we're about to read here is going to talk over and over again about Daniel. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but what I just read to you, and that the Lord gave Jehoiakim king, into his hand. What's happening here is God is at work with this kingdom. Judah, the, king, uh, the kingdom of Judah in the southern, the southern kingdom, is not doing well. They're not following the Lord. And so God has a plan. He's going to deal with that rebellion. There are rules that they should have obeyed. They have rebelled against those, uh, those rules. And now there is going to be retribution towards Judah for not following the rules, not following God's rules. So that's, what, that's what's going on here. So he besieged it. He took some stuff back, and he says he took them to the land of Shinar. Some of you might recognize that. That's the, where the Tower of Babel was. Okay, so we're in a land of Mesopotamia. We conquer Judah, and we go back. So that, to me, is our context. It gets us to 605 B.C. But let's keep reading. What happens next? Then the king commanded Ashpenaz and his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them of the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Okay? What's happening here is as Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah, 
He goes into Judah. He, he takes his chief eunuch. Everybody here probably knows what a eunuch is. A king had a concubine and his wives, and he wanted to have somebody in his entourage to take care of the concubine. He wanted to make sure there was no hanky-panky between that person and the concubine, so that, that person got castrated. So this is the chief castrated guy. All right? His name is Ashpenaz. He's there, and he tells Ashpenaz, Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. He tells Ashpenaz, I want you to go get from the royalty, from the noble class, I want you to find some use. Bring me back to Babylon some use. I want use without blemish and good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning the things of the Chaldeans. Because he, see, he says here, we're going to take these guys, these youths, we're going to take them out of their culture, we're going to bring them to Babylonian culture, and I want you to pick some guys who foreseeably can be leaders. I want you to find some skilled kids. We're going to take them out of their families, out of their homes, and, I, I, and in three years, I'm going to give you three years to train them up in our culture. We're going to try to get them to assimilate out of their culture and into our culture. That's the first thing. Nebuchadnezzar does. But he gives him another instruction. It also says here um, in verse 5, The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. All right. Basically, these guys were pulled out of their homeland. They were taken to Babylon. These were elite guys, elite class of kids. Probably, you know, you're, you're picking your Olympic champions and you're trying to train them. That's who these guys are. These, these are guys with the most potential. You take them, you train them, and we're going to treat them like royalty. We're going to give them first-class treatment. You're going to eat the same menu the king eats. You're going to get the same wine at your meal that the king gets. And for three years, I want, I'm going to give you three years to train these guys, then bring them to me, and they're going to stand before me, and I'm going to judge how, how well you've done these kids, what you've done with these kids. So they're relocated, and they're re-educated so that they might be assimilated into the new culture. Among these were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. They're all from Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave each of them new names. He named Daniel, Belshazzar, Hananiah. He called him Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, and Abednego. Those are the names you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Those are the familiar names. So Daniel is there with his new name, and his buddies, his three friends, get their new name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these three things happen to these guys. They're pulled out of their land, and they get relocated. They get re-educated, and they get renamed. The new names that they're given, they, they reflect the new Babylonian culture. A couple of the names reflect the god. Uh, they have a pantheon of gods there in Babylon, and a couple of the names reflect those. Some of the other names, the one given to Daniel and Abednego, just have other cultural meaning that's very Babylonian, Chaldean in nature. It would be like us Americans naming one of our kids Babe Ruth or Jefferson or Simpson or something like that that's you know, well-known in our culture. That's a joke. Okay. Uh, all right. So they're renamed. Now then, can you identify with that? You know, at some point here today, I'm this morning. I'm going to try to get us to put ourselves in the situation. 
And I don't know that we really can do that. I mean, it would be like me trying to get you to imagine for real that somebody, a country from the Middle East, is going to come conquer us and take our kids, our best of our kids back. That might include your kids or, or not. It depends. Okay. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm old. I'm 70. I see things through a different lens than you guys do. And so I want to kind of put this in my lens and maybe it can get us closer to understanding what's happening here. Because frankly, uh, I have a sense, I believe, that I have been relocated from my original home. The home that I, uh, the place where I was born and where I was raised, TV was a good thing. Where family values were taught on TV. Uh, so some of the TV shows with families, they even got down and they kneeled and they prayed at night. I, I, I watched that on TV. It really happened. Um, the place um, where I came from, abortion was a bad thing. Nobody would have ever thought in their wildest dreams in the place I came from that abortion would be acceptable to a, a good portion of our population or that even our, my tax dollars would pay for it. The place where I came from, there were only two genders. Right now, we're going to run out of alphabet letters pretty quick. <laughs> Marriage in the place I came from was between a man and a woman. Men, it, w it was unthinkable that men could compete in a swimming event that was a woman's event. And that somebody could figure out a way to rationalize that was incomprehensible. The place I came from, drawing unemployment, was not an acceptable way of making a living unless you really needed it for a short period of time. In our culture, people go on unemployment, then they'll take a job for a month, so they can go back on unemployment for another year, then they'll take a job for a month, they'll go back on unemployment for another year. We know friends, we know of friends, who fight fires in the summer, so they can go on unemployment all winter. Or who lead rafting crews down the river in the Grand Canyon in the summer, so they can go on unemployment all winter. It's not taboo. It's not bad. That's considered a legitimate way. There's no stigma attached to that. It's not how it was in the place I come from. The place I came from, Christmas cards always said, Merry Christmas. They never said Happy Holidays. To be a Christian, to be called a Christian, that was a good name. Where I live now, it's almost a curse word. It's a name you hide. And last but not least, in the place where I came from, there was no kale. <laughs> so this place I live right now is not the place where I grew up. I don't recognize this place. And I'm being fed a constant diet of garbage not fit to consume, I think, as people want me to assimilate into this new culture. TV, social media, printed media, politicians, school teachers, school board members, and yes, Christian preachers and Christian bookstores. It's coming at us from all directions. Somebody is trying to assimilate us into a culture that is not the place that I grew up in. It's a very organized effort, and what they're trying to get me to do is to deconstruct. And I will not deconstruct. 
and I have a plan for the next year. Just to be clear here, I'm, I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about spiritual things. So receive what I say to you this morning in a spiritual context. So uh, what I'm saying to you, that's the context, Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in. It's a set of circumstances that isn't pretty. It's much worse than I just described to you of the world I live in compared to the place I was raised in. But what I want us to know is that that chapter is not about Daniel because they're there. They're relocated, they're re-educated, and they're renamed. That's God's plan. God did it. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine and that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It's not about Daniel. Because verse 9 says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Aspenazah. Not only are they there because of God, but they're in the circumstances they're in. David's made a decision here that he's not going to defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that the king drank. Now, we don't know exactly what was there that, that bothered Daniel so much. Perhaps there was pork or bacon or some, uh, something in that menu that was not acceptable. Or perhaps you know, the wine was overly indulged in. The expectations, if you started it, were something. But Daniel made a decision based on what he knew that he would not do this. But Daniel would not have had an option to not do this. But for God acted. God took control of the circumstances. This is, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the other youths who were for your own age? In other words, if I do what you're asking me to do, if I let you not drink, and eat the food, you're going to get unhealthy. And the king is going to see it, and it's going to be my job. It's going to be my neck. But it says God gave this chief eunuch favor over, over Daniel. It doesn't say that the eunuch said, no, I won't do it. He gave him favor. And the way he gave him favor, it says, it says then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants to sit for 10 days. So, so the chief servant says, I don't like this. I could get in trouble for this. But he doesn't stop Daniel from going to the, the next guy down who's actually bringing their meals to him, the steward. And he tells that steward, test us. Feed us. Give us 10 days on this diet. And, and let, let's see how it goes. Okay? And so... The steward, again, because God gave him compassion for Daniel and his friends, he lets them try it for 10 days. And as they try it for 10 days, and we read on in text 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and they were, that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. Make no mistake that to engage in such a diet of lettuce, carrots, broccoli, whatever, even over a short period of time, it would not make you fatter. It would not make you healthier. Once again, the fact that they were fatter and healthier than the other people, again, shows this is what God is doing. Daniel and his buddies are just, are just characters in the play. 
But God's action, God is doing what God's going to do here. This has absolutely nothing to do with the Daniel diet. Anybody heard about that? There's a big church, big pastor, Daniel diet. We're going to do this proof. Taking this, using it as a proof text for a vegetable, vegetarian, vegan diet is nonsense. Okay? Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. I have a, a footnote here. It says, luckily, kale had not yet been invented, or, there, or there's no way even God could have stopped, stepped in to save their livers. Okay. I'm not sure where I got that. They implement the test. It works. A miracle happens. And so they, they are on vegetables, uh, vegetables and water for the duration. Uh, that chapter is not about Daniel. That chapter is about God. Okay. Let's, let's keep reading here. Starting in verse 17. As for these fourth youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This chapter is not about Daniel, because it says right there that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God acted. What they had received, how well they had done in their classes, was all in the hands of God. It's exceptional there that not only were they taught well, but Daniel got an extra gift to interpret dreams and visions. He could understand them. He's going to use that later in this book if you're familiar with the book. God is preparing Daniel for something that he has planned for Daniel. Verse 18, at the end of the time, that would be at the end of the three years, at the end of the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. These guys did great. They did great not because they were bright, not because they had IIQs. They did great because God made it happen. And when they were examined by Nebuchadnezzar, he found them not only smarter than all the others who had been trained those three years, he found them smarter than his own magicians and enchanters. Kings back then had people to do magic, you know, miracles. They had enchanters, soothsayers, who told them what was going to happen in the future. And none of, the, none of them could measure up to what Daniel and his buddies were able to do. This chapter is not about Daniel. This chapter is about God. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. <coughs> I'm not going to go back to the board, but in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came in and he conquered Judah for real for once and for all, and took many of them back to the Babylonian. There was a 70-year Babylonian captivity. And that, that, that captivity remained until King Cyrus came in charge. He conquered the Babylonians, and he released them. So uh, Jeremiah prophesied they were going to go into exile for 70 years, and sure enough, in 70 years, they got released. Let's do a little bit of math here. From 586 to the Cyrus is 70 years. But from 605 to 586 is another 19 years. My math says that's 89 years. 89 years from the time 605 
till they were released. Assuming Daniel was 15 maybe or 20 when he was taken in there as a youth, add that to the 89. Daniel's over 100 years old. He has lived his entire life in exile. He's lived his entire life in circumstances he would never have planned for himself. All right? Let's keep going. Aren't you glad that we don't live a life in exile? Let's try to digest this. Um, in a minute, I'm going to say, what does this mean to us? Be before I do, do that, though, let's just talk about a few things because I want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to misstate anything. Because if I'm correct that if I am in exile, as I told you I was earlier, I, this is not the place I grew up in. If I am in exile, then according to what I just read, that if I submit to, re to retraining, reindoctrination, and renaming, any scheme like that that's presented to me, all I have to do is eat vegetables and water. Is that right? Is that what you're going to take away from the passage? I can live in American culture as it exists as long as I eat vegetables and water. I don't think so. So let's, let's, let's do something with this. This book is, is a magnificent piece of literature. It's not just something some guys got down and in their best way with God wrote stuff. This is a literary masterpiece in every respect. In poetry, in structure, uh, it, it, it's written in several different genres from poetry to wisdom to historical narrative and all of those genres are written in ways that grammar applies grammar that we use today applies you know when we read this thing we can apply every rule we know about grammar every de definition of every word that's used over time we can use that and we can understand what it is this is a historical narrative it really happened in historical narratives one of the things that is often used in historical narratives is repetition. And repetition is what tells us what's important in the narrative. There were three verses that I read to you. In verse 2 it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. I'm using gave as capitals, all caps. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion from the steward. I'm using gave in all caps. God gave Daniel favor. And in verse 17, God gave them learning. God gave them what they needed to survive in the world that they lived in. Alright? But their circumstances, their circumstances in exile were ordained by God. Okay? Why did God do this to Judah. I'm pretty sure, again, I have this on semi-reliable sources from the Dead Sea Scrolls that at this time in Judah's history, when Hanukkah came around and when Passover came around, they exchanged greeting cards that said Happy Holidays. <laughs> Judah had lost its way. Judah did not remember who they were. And God knew they were not following the law, the rules that they had been given. Therefore, they, they, God could see that they were in rebellion. Therefore, God needed to use retribution to punish that rebellion. What stands in the fourth R here is redemption, relenting, resolution. 
These guys are living in, in tension. The world is not good. How do you live when the world is not good? When the tension has not been resolved? Exile existed for a purpose, the purpose that they would grow if, if they would seek to find God's purpose for them while they lived in the exile circumstances. God had a will and a purpose for them while they lived in exile. You might be thinking, it's the same thing you think about Moses or you talk about Paul or you talk about, I'm no Daniel. I'm no David, right? You're right, maybe. You're not a Daniel, okay? One gender, two genders only. You're not a, half of you don't, never mind. You may not be a Daniel, but I'm going to suggest something to you. Let's reach a couple of things between the lines here. Number one is this is not just about Daniel's life. This is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why do we have to have their names? Why are they in the mix? Because Daniel didn't do this alone. There were other people. And in 70 years, when captivity ended because Cyrus came into power, there wasn't just these four people that came back to the promised land. There were many people in the same circumstances as this, but what we learn from Daniel and from his four, the, the semi-nameless guys, the also co-starring in, in the story today, is simply the fact that God had a plan for them in the circumstances in which they lived. You may not be a Daniel, but you are a Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, or something very similar thereof. So where are we? In the whole storyline of history, where are we? The Bible's linear. It has a beginning, right? In the beginning, God created seven days, and in the end, we have a new Jerusalem. It's linear. But along that linear path, there are all kinds of episodes in the Bible that are circular, where there's rules, there's rebellion, there's retribution, and, there's, and God redeems. He relents. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. He laid down a rule. They rebelled. He cursed them. That was retribution. But at the same time, he gave them something that would redeem them. He, he covered their nakedness with animal skins. He gave them a promise that the devil, the Satan, who got you in this mess, his head's going to be crushed. That's what he gave Adam and Eve. Same thing happened at the time of Noah. They had a law, they had rules, they weren't, follow, they weren't following. God was regretted that he had made man, and so he sent retribution for their rebellion in the form of a storm, a flood, right? And when the flood was over in 40 days, there was redemption. God took Noah and, and, his, and his family off the boat, and they did sacrifices, and there was restoration, and there was a new creation, and they were told, go ahead and dwell, multiply the earth again. Let's start this thing over again. I could say the same thing for Joseph and his family. And the tribes. I could say the same thing for Daniel. God gave Noah something to redeem him. He gave him a boat. God gave Joseph something. In his tribulation that he was living, he gave him favor with Pharaoh. That's not the time that you and I live in. You and I live, though, I believe, in exile. We believe in the wilderness. We live in the wilderness. We are on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. We are sinners. 
God has given us the law. The law still applies, but the law is there in our lives to convict us of our sin. We, we look at the law and we, we fail and we fail and we confess and we confess. It just is there. It remains. The rules remain. But we rebel. And as we rebel, we live in a fallen world and that's the retribution. That's the curse that you and I live in. What is the redemption? What did God give us? What could God possibly give us? Two weeks ago, Bob Sweet, as a worship leader, took us to John 3.16. Last week, I took us to John 3.17 and 18. Let me remind you uh, of that. I'm using the word gave in capitals. So God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. He gave Noah a boat. He gave Adam and Eve covering. He gave Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego what they needed. And in the fullness of time, he completed that cycle in our time. He gave us his only son. <clears throat> this is not about Daniel. This is about God and what God does with and how he deals with his rebellious people. And they find themselves in, in circumstances that they don't like over and over and over again, be it Noah, be it Joseph, be it Adam and Eve, be it you and I. This is not our home. Jesus talking to Pilate said, ah, this is not my kingdom. This is, I'm not from here. We belong to another place. We are exiles. You and I are. So I ask myself, what chaos is this you're going to bring? We thought we were on the other side of something and it seems like maybe we're not. What chaos does this year bring? I'm going to suggest three or four things here. Number one, whatever the chaos is, God's doing it. We have been relocated to a place that is not our home. Our culture will do everything it can in the next 12 months to assimilate you into that pagan culture. The United States of America is a pagan culture. All right? We are not members of this kingdom. That's what I want you to take into the next 12 months if Jesus doesn't come first. I ask myself, regardless of what chaos this year brings, how will the Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednego's in this room be used by God this year? If we only seek His purpose and not question our own circumstance, we'll get through the year. The only thing we need to know, our life preserver, our lifesaver is, God so loved the world, He gave us His only Son. Let's pray. Father, we live so much as if this, this is our home and this is our world and this is our life and we've got to fix it and we've got to make it right and we've got to end the chaos and we pray and pray for you to end the chaos when the chaos is just what we need. Show us what our call is in the chaos of the next 12 months. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.